0: Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered, and unedited talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Today on Conversations From Here, I speak with musician, vocalist, diarist, educator, skilled culinarian, and former frontman for the Joe Perry Project, Cowboy Mock Bell. We talk about his early years with the cello, finding his musical gift as a frontman, seeing Aerosmith for the first time, playing with the band Thundertrain, touring with Joe Perry, adjusting to regular life, finding joy and work as a chef, becoming an educator, and finding himself as an author. His book, Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker, A Diary, is available wherever books and audiobooks are sold. A great read with incredible stories. Here's me and Mock. All right, here we go. Hello there, Mock Bell. Thank you so much for beaming in from the East Coast.
1: Hello, Dana. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for taking the time today. I know you, you you narrowly escaped a bad nor'easter last night, and I'm happy to see that you're safe and sound with your guitars in the background and sun coming in the window.
1: Yes, it's, well, the sun's trying to come through. It's, uh, there's a lot of, of uh, reflective light coming off the snow banks. we got a, almost a foot of snow. I, I'm right out on the coast, but just north of me in Boston, they had over a foot of snow. So everybody's very happy, especially the kids.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because they don't have to they don't have to shovel it. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> so I thought that we would start um start with your formative years. I understand that you are you are in fact a Midwesterner, not an East Coaster. Is that right? Ohio?
1: Yes, I brag about that a lot, but I will admit to you that it was only for a minute that I was a Midwesterner. I was born uh, in the state of Ohio, uh, Western Ohio, a little college town called Yellow Springs, Ohio, uh, Antioch College, uh, where people like Rod Serling from Mm -hmm. Twilight Zone and Coretta Scott King from Mm -hmm. the great Martin Luther King's wife, and, uh, and my parents were both students there in the early 50s. And my dad was the game warden uh, he, because you got a little cabin if you're the game warden for the school. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was. Bo- I was born in a log cabin.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah.
1: So in case when I decide to run for president, I've got that. Exactly. <laughs> I think this is the first time I've, uh, I've admitted that uh, on the air anywhere. So th- that's a scoop.
0: God, that's a great, that, that's a, that's a great image. That's a great image. That's like, if that, if there is nothing more salt of the earth than being born in a log cabin.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we moved to, out here to uh, a suburb of Boston when I was just a, a baby and uh, into an old 1799 uh, house that had been the first schoolhouse in the town of Holliston, uh, about 30 miles west of Boston. And that's where I, I spent my formative years growing up in that old schoolhouse.
0: How was, beautiful! How beautiful! It wasn't was that, that that and and so because you weren't in the Midwest for very long, you were just a baby at the time. So it wasn't like you had a culture clash when you moved to the Boston area.
1: No, but I think I, I think maybe I kept my Ohio accent because I don't really have the Boston accent that you hear in the movies. Mm -hmm. I used to hear that at uh, these big uh, broadcasting schools where people learn to be a DJ, that they used to teach people to speak with the Ohio accent, Uh and I like to think that that's, that I mastered that in my early few months.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you soak in, you know, when you're a baby, you're a little sponge, and you're, you're, you know, soaking in everything that's around you, so, uh, but but then they also say that you, you speak like your peers, so the people that you grow up with. So you don't tend to sound like your mom and dad, but you sound more like the people that you, you, um, you hang out with as a kid. So maybe you got some Boston in there somewhere.
1: In that case, I should sound like the Three Stooges because I spent a lot of time watching the Three Stooges as a child.
0: Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, those guys are fantastic. So then, so you, and, and, and when did you first, did you, did you start with an instrument when you were a kid?
1: I was surrounded with music. My mother played guitar and she had a very pretty singing voice, um, but she was shy about it. It wasn't like she was a nightingale all over the place, but, <laughs> but she had the talent my dad was in the audio business. He didn't play himself, but he uh, was on the forefront of the stereo movement that was coming out in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of wonderful gear around uh, when I was growing up. Micro- and, my, and my grandfather, before my father, was the, one of the first sound men in America. He actually left Dartmouth uh, when the first loudspeaker was invented, he went to New York and bought a truckload of loudspeakers because, can you imagine what the world was like before 1929, before mm-hmm. the loudspeaker? Mm. Uh, you know, <laughs> if I wanted to- You had to
0: yell. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you get a big megaphone. If you mm-hmm. wanted to be able to hear more of the violin part of the orchestra, you just got more violinists. Or, or you, you figured out uh, 76 trombones to get Mm-hmm. in the parade to get the sound you wanted, there was no way to turn up the volume. So my grandfather was on the edge of that. So uh, by the time I came along, um, there were microphones and speakers and all this stuff around. Now, my, my my dad always looked at me in wonderment that I ever ended up becoming a rock singer. But to me, it was like, isn't it obvious? You had a, I had a microphone. <laughs> hand.
0: I cannot imagine another career path for you, actually, being raised in the the forefront of high fidelity.
1: That's right. My dad's, uh, his uh, license plate said hi-fi on it, in fact. That was his license plate, hi-fi. Yeah, so there was a lot of music around, but it wasn't until we did a family trip out across the United States in the station wagon when I was 12. And when I was out in California, I met a cousin who played in the NBC orchestra, um, part of Doc Severinsen's whole, you know, Johnny Mm -hmm. Carson, except this guy played the cello. Mm -hmm. There was a string section that would come in for certain acts, not just for, I think the NBC orchestra was used in other NBC productions as well, but anyway. He had this thing called a cello, which totally uh, fascinated me. I'd like to say it was because of the beautiful mellow tones and the beautiful uh, wood that it was crafted of, but, but what really got me was this thing called the end pin, mm-hmm. which is the bottom of the instrument. <laughs> That's right. This big spike. That <laughs> <Stay on that. laughs> it looked like something out of James Bond to me, and I really wanted to have this instrument that had this secret um, thumb screw that you turned, and this sharp peg came out. But so I was classically trained on the cello for um, from the time I was ten up until the time I was a young teenager, um, and, and I I enjoyed it. But um, what happened was the school orchestra morphed into the school marching band, and the cello doesn't fit into that group. And yeah, what I too much. <laughs> You know, Dana, what I really wanted, I think, as much as making music was, I liked the camaraderie of, I wanted to have a little gang of guys that would come together and make music together. Mm -hmm. Um, I did like to watch TV. I was fascinated when I'd see the monkeys in their little clubhouse, uh, you know, and I loved that whole idea of, of the gang together putting on a show. I had been, I was a showman from a young age, before even I did the cello at 10, my sister and brother and I and the other neighborhood kids would, I would, round them up and have them put on these circuses and carnivals in the backyard. Circuses, um, you know, we'd have a strong man, we'd have somebody swing on a rope, we'd have uh, um, an animal act, and um, the only problem with my circuses was I would get every kid in the in the whole neighborhood was in the circus, so there was nobody left to come see our circus. <laughs> but but I love to put on a show and and and, uh with my little bit of rudimentary cello knowledge I um, was pretty easy to switch to the electric guitar you know guitar has frets uh you know the violin and the cello don't have that right and um and there were all these um fantastic three chord songs uh you know I can't get no satisfaction hang on sloopy gloria on the radio that pretty quick to, you know, figure out your own 12, 13 year old version of those tunes. And, um, and, you know, this was, now we're talking in the early sixties, the Beatles set off a mania, not only of girls jumping up and down, but also young boys that all wanted to play drums and play guitars. And uh, so right on your own block, just like now, kids on their own block can find kids to play Minecraft with or to mm-hmm. ride a um, uh, rip uh, For us, you could get a gang together and play play in a band right on your own street.
0: Yeah, <laughs> this is this is the uh, the plus of analog living. Before all this other stuff came in, we actually played outside and we we saw each other and we'd go and you know, bang on your, you'd go and bang on your friend's door and, hey, man, let's go, you know, yeah, so.
1: That's right. Uh, and, and uh, you know, multi-track uh, recording and stuff that we can do now digitally, you couldn't do then. So if you wanted to have drums underneath your guitar track, yeah, you had to make friends with a guy that played drums and actually do it. And, mm-hmm. and it was, a, so it was a whole social thing as well as a musical thing which has become a you know a lifelong thing for me and, and in all the different bands i played with you, you know you're not only coming together musically but there's that whole social thing as well and, and so it's absolutely uh, it's quite a, a, a quite a puzzle
0: Mhm mhm and so the the beatles came in of course in in um 1963 and of course the stones were were soon to follow and today i must mark the occasion that today december 18th is it's keith richard's birthday Ooh. So, happy birthday mate
1: <laughs> yes one of my i,
0: I hope he never dies mock i hope he lives to be 302 honestly
1: <laughs> doesn't seem to be anything that can stop. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's um, a role model of mine and I always when I go out uh, to do things, I always think would Keith would Keith Richards do this? You know, like would he wear these shorts with these sandals? No, I don't think so. So, you know, when everybody is out there dressed for the heat, I'm tr- I'm the the guy in the corner dressed like Keith.
0: <laughs> he's somebody he's somebody who's kind of he's kind of like a, like a Buddha and, uh, and, uh, and really he's a Delta blues man at heart. That's what he always wanted to be in his heart of hearts as a young man growing up. And he has fulfilled, he has essentially fulfilled that dream. Oh Uh, boy. (laughs) has he ever, right?
1: (laughs) And, and I think he's fulfilled, vicariously filled, fulfilled dreams for many of us, uh, aspiring rock and rollers out there. Uh, it's, when I, if I turned my camera to the side, you would see my bookshelves groaning with Rolling Stones books, it's amazing. I mean, you could fill a library with just books about the stones and I have, I won't say I have them all, because I don't, <laughs> but there's so many. So I love to read about the stones.
0: And I, and I love that they're still doing what, you know people would say, well, are you ever gonna stop You know and 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 Keith said well uh, what else am I gonna do I'm basically unemployable you know (laughs) because what else are you gonna do when you're when you're in your 70s and you've been a rock star your entire life you know where do you go from there you know
1: (laughs) no I know it's hard to figure out the next act but you know he did write a book and uh life yes fantastic And, and um I'm sure this other offshoot he probably has a wonderful garden and uh, does all kinds of things that we are are personal to him you
0: know. well, he lives in Connecticut and has a has a wonderful library and uh, lives with his wife and kids and dogs and cats i mean there's there's not much better than that but so when you discovered the guitar when you when you segged into the guitar, who were your, uh, so the Beatles and the Stones, obviously were influences, but, um, who else at that time?
1: Yeah, I liked Keith a lot. Uh, I was really into the kinks. I liked the mm-hmm. sound. Uh, I like that rough, raw, jagged sound, um, for all that, um, you know, the Beatles fantastic, uh, you know, and I loved, uh, the Beach Boys and the Four mm-hmm. Seasons and all mm-hmm. kinds of music, but that really, uh, a raw, jagged sound of bands like the Trogs and the Kinks and mm-hmm. uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Uh, yeah, the Who came along. Oh, yeah. Um, that kind of thing uh, really drove my guitar. Um, it's it It's funny, though. You know, I mean, those are the things that, that, came, that I listened to. What I actually played, I don't know if people would listen to that and say, sure. oh, he plays like Pete Townsend. I wish they did, but... Mm-hmm. Um, you know how it is. I mean, you can read the greats, but doesn't mean you're going to write like the people that you read necessarily, but, but it does inform you. Um, so yeah, so then I was a guitarist for, for quite a few years, and, and I enjoyed that, and and there were so many guitarists, and what I started to see was that all these guitarists and drummers and players that were around um, needed a showman, a front man to gravitate around, to really uh, make the difference.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause you could take the Raiders or the Trogs, you know, or Alice Cooper or Aerosmith or the Stones. And when you take away the Mick Jagger character, Stephen, right. Stephen <laughs> Steven or the Jagger character, you know, those guys are a little more interchangeable in the rest of the band you know, Alice Cooper's band could have backed up Mick Jagger, I imagine, put on a a fun show, you know, most of the people would still be watching Mick out front doing his thing. Um, Anyway, I figured I was always looking for that guy. I said, I I, I could play guitar. Now I need my Mick Jagger. And it's very hard to find a Mick Jagger or an Alice Cooper, or or, or, you know, whoever. And um, so I said, okay, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to reinvent myself as this guy. I was very much aided by a young drummer uh, in the town next to mine who saw me uh, singing. I was playing my guitar, but I was singing because my singer didn't show up at the gig. So I was singing and he came up afterwards and asked me to audition. The drummer asked me to audition for his band as a lead singer. He said, leave your guitar home. I have a guitarist. I like what you do on the mic. This kind of blew my mind. But it was what I needed to push me over the cliff,
0: right? And,
1: uh, you know, I didn't look back. I left the guitar home. I just showed up and uh, started doing my thing out front. And you know, it's not just warbling in a pretty way. You know, you're you're fronting a band. Um, you're relating to an audience. You're uh, making the brand, the stamp of what you you see. What your band is, you you know starting with the band name you know i was in this band thunder train with that drummer and i would visualize what thunder train was and what it meant and and uh, i took the stage name mock bell because the mark bell name was already being used by another guy down in washington dc but i was thinking big even when i was a kid Um, i was going to go for it as far as i could take it Um, so i had the stage name mock bell and i started with Thunder Train, and lo and behold, um, we really took off. It was a hot time in the early '70s and mid '70s. Uh, clubs like Max's Kansas City, CBGBs in New York,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, the Rat in Boston was a similar kind of room. Um, we were playing Rat
0: Skeller, right? It's Rat Skeller is the is the full name of it. It was
1: a Rat Skeller, which, you know, Rat Skeller, there's a Rat Skeller in every town, I think, but but ours became the Rat. Um, we, we would jump back and forth between playing these uh, city uh, high-profile kind of clubs where you go to play and get signed to a big record deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were also playing all the high schools, the colleges, and, and we came out of playing the, the, the clubs. What happened was right when Thunder Train began, the drinking age changed from 21 to
0: 18. Right, yep.
1: All of a sudden, every dive bar in every, everywhere, suddenly needed a band. And they all wanted a band that drew that young audience. That that little group between 18 and 21, man, they've got money to spend they can stay up all night, no problem. They'll pack a club. They dance like crazy. They're attractive young people, which draws other people to come into the club. Mm-hmm. Um, and we specialized in drawing that kind of a crowd. Mm-hmm. So timing was good on that, um, as far as uh, filling, filling places and creating places for us to play. The, of course, the, the, the bad guy of that whole uh, era was disco because the disco came in and would go to these same bars and say, hey, you don't want to hire bands, get rid of the bands, just put on a record player and play, you know, rock the boat, and we can all do the bump all night.
0: And <laughs> right. The and all that, yeah. <laughs>
1: so it was, so it was fun
0: times. But you must have also been bumping into all kinds of other bands who who were also finding their footing, too, at the same time, because this was early 70s, right?
1: Right. We had bands like uh, Rick Ocasek's band, The Cars, were an opening band for Thunder Train uh, at that point. Thunder Train kind of rocketed uh, in Boston for a couple of years. We were on this album Live at the Rat that was a compilation of a bunch of bands. Um, we were playing... Uh, mid- uh, Thin Lizzy came down one night after they had uh, uh, jam- they had opened for uh, Queen at the Boston Garden, and they came mm-hmm. over to the Rat and jumped up on stage and jammed with Thunder Train. Um, we did a famous show at the Rat with the Runaways, mm-hmm. um, that became even wilder when Iggy Iggy showed up and he brought along his producer keyboard player David Bowie. Oh yes. Yeah. So- uh, so I was singing with David Bowie and Iggy in the front row, and uh, wow. the Runaways in the dressing room. Um, yeah, it was a, a really fantastic, um, and of course, all the punk bands, the the, the Dead Boys, the Ramones. Uh, mm-hmm. We we were working with all of those bands as well. Um, so it was, you know, it was kind of really exciting. And later, when I was working with Joe Perry on the road. Um, I think he envied in a a way that I was out in the clubs doing these wild gigs with the runways and with David Bowie out front when he is out in, you know, Sioux city playing at the sports arena, just security holding the kids back and you finish your set and then you're back in some concrete dressing room and then you're back out to the
0: uh,
1: hotel. um, While we're, you know, we're at the dumpsters in back at CBGB's partying with Dee Dee Ramone. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> where do you want to be? At the Four Seasons or at the dumpster with Dee, Dee Come on.
0: And then you, when was the first time that you encountered Aerosmith?
1: I first um, saw them just prior, to, yeah, well, just prior to me making that switch from guitarist to being a frontman, I went to the local teen center in, uh, and I saw Aerosmith. Uh, I had no idea who they were. They were just an opening band for, for a popular, lo- another more popular local band. And uh, Aerosmith pops onto the stage and totally blew everybody's mind. They had only been together now for a couple of months, but they already, um, you know, they were just formed uh, at birth, I think. It just, <laughs> those guys all coming together on a stage.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, Steven was on fire and he just needed a really good heavy band to uh, put behind him uh, to explode. Joe was the coolest guy in the world, but he needed a foil uh, because, you know, being Keith, it's great to come out of the shadows and toss away the cigarette button, lay down that cool lick but you need, you know, you need that front man to hold down the fort so that you could come out and do your cool thing. And now Joe had that. And, you know, it was that way. The whole table was set with that band. And, uh, I walked out of there totally had, my mind was blown. I was very inspired by, uh, what I saw Joe do on guitar, even more inspired by the image that he portrayed on stage. Same with Steven. Um, The music I loved, but the whole image and the idea that these guys were from my local area, uh, as opposed to, you know, I had seen Jimi Hendrix experience and I'd seen Led Zeppelin, but they might as well have been from Saturn. Mm -hmm. These guys were in my, uh, same uh, orbit as me and to think that they could do it gave me this, uh, uh, dream. And I figured I could go for being the Joe, or I could go for being the Steven. And I I, I thought, you know, uh, there just, there weren't many front men around. So it was, it was just a thing of, you know, you had to have the, the, the nerve. And uh, I was not an overconfident guy, actually. Uh, um, I don't know what drove me exactly. And my parents, for all that they supported me as far as Um, having gear around and giving me, letting me make my noise up in my room and do that. They were never the kind of parents that's, oh, you sound so wonderful when you play. And, oh, I love, you know, they were never like that. They they'd look at me when I'd come out (laughs) after wailing away on some wild thing, guitar thing, (laughs) shaking their head. They didn't understand it. Um,
0: But they tolerated it. And they supported you in that they didn't discourage you. So that may may be part of why you hung in there is because you thought, well, I want them to notice this. I want them to see, you know, like waiting for that moment where they would be like, wow.
1: (laughs) And I was fortunate that day did come eventually, you know, took years, but I was able to bring them, you know, to the biggest room in the town, you know, pack standing room only in a really big production. And they got to see
0: mm.
1: what I do in that context. And then they could understand that this is very loud. It's very bright. It's very crazy. And that's our son in the middle of it. <laughs> and people are reacting and he's doing it. So, you know, they got to, got to see it and, 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 uh, understand it as much as as they could.
0: (laughs) Well, they saw, and they saw you in full expression and your joy and your talent. And I mean, that must've really been a gift to give them.
1: Yeah. You know, a door opened between my dad and I, uh, it wasn't until my father was in his thirties that he went out sailing with a, one of the guys that worked at the shop. And my dad came back a totally changed man. And from that time on, sailing was what he was about. And, you know, getting his boat, getting a bigger boat, uh, learning more and more about sailing. And he had this incredible passion for it. And so I would say, you know, (laughs) that's how I am with this this rock and roll and this um, showbiz, uh whole I never knew I guess yeah rock and roll. It seems bigger than that in my head because uh it certainly seems bigger than music. It was this whole uh like I said it's that brotherhood thing. It's that running with the band. It's traveling the country and seeing sites together and and, and meeting the fans and, and, and uh all of it.
0: But what's interesting too is that you seem to know innately when you were a young person that you had this inside you, and that you knew you wanted to 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 let it come out, and and you weren't intimidated. Like you said, you had, you know, your your one drummer who kind of gave you a certain amount of validation to say, "Hey, you have you you are a front man," and mm-hmm. and then Thunder Train. Began, But the fact that you knew that innately is interesting to me.
1: Well, I also should credit my mother. I was um, I was having a hard time in the public school system uh, at the time when the rock and roll was happening. I wanted to express myself. I wanted to grow my hair like Keith Richards. I wanted to wear boots like uh, Roger Daltrey. I wanted to be cool. And in the school I was at, you wouldn't know the 60s were going on. If you looked at the uh, yearbook, it looked like it was 1958. Ah. Um, And compulsory education uh, was a distraction from my dream and and all the work I wanted to do. Um, So a school was opening locally uh, at that time that had a philosophy uh, of self-directed learning And uh, a democratic setup where uh, kids had a vote on how things happened, like in a town meeting in New England. Mm -hmm. And my dad couldn't fathom it, but my mother uh, supported me leaving the public high school and going to this uh, experimental, uh, uh, self-directed place, which, as you can imagine, was an incredible fit for me. It was age mixing, so I was able to uh, be with guys older than me, some of whom had seen big bands or were players themselves and knew some of them were from Boston, had more of the street. I I knew more what was going on in the street. I was very interested in all of this. Also, though, I was hanging out with the much younger kids and they would like to watch me play guitar. I'd teach them some things. It made me feel better. That I was able to share something, and they became uh, fans of, uh, uh, of what I did. So I was in the middle of this whole um, fantastic environment to learn, and I exploded in that. Um, and that's the work I do actually now. Uh, I'm at the May Converse Center in Framingham, and which is self-directed learning. Mm-hmm. And you know, unfortunately, not everybody on the earth finds their passion at age 10 or, or, you know, knows what their direct. a lot of people are like my dad. They, he didn't, he didn't even know about sailing until he was in his thirties. And then it, then he discovered his passion. Mm-hmm. Some people, I don't know when, or if they do find it, but um, um, it's, it's my mission to, to try to take away the distraction of all this compulsory things of of what elders like myself think everybody should know mm-hmm. and you know get into your own self and who who are you and what drives you and and what is it that 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 you have to um, bring to the table and, and uh you know sometimes it takes a really long time uh, to to get there but i try to help kids um Navigate that
0: You're paying it forward. That's so Mm. great paying it forward. What what your experience was
1: I never would have thought that I'd be in education believe me. I've been doing it now for what 20 something years and uh, it's 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 fantastic work as you can imagine to play music and and make films and and uh, do all kinds of things with the kids, right? Talk about how to get a mortgage you know, mm-hmm. debate. You know, anything that I know a little bit about, I'll, I'll um, I'll share with the kids, and they share so much with me. I was playing Roblox the other day.
0: <laughs> I don't know what that is. I don't hmm? have any kids around me to to uh, <laughs> show me the ropes. <laughs> yeah,
1: forget Minecraft. You got to get on Roblox now. <laughs> anyway,
0: so once you uh. So you're with uh, you're with Thunder Train, you've seen Aerosmith, you've seen the glory that is Steven Tyler and Joe Perry, and you're you're moving forward in your own career. And then how how did the um, the connection with the Joe Perry project happen?
1: Yeah, I have no idea. That was a, <laughs> a mystery. It's uh, you can divine
0: tell- providence. <laughs>
1: You know, my, my band, Thundertrain, kind of ran its course after five years. It was a weird, something was going on in the stars, I guess, because at the same time uh, Led Zeppelin got out of it, they were one of the kingpins of the kind of rock that we were doing. Mm-hmm. Aerosmith shattered. Joe Perry quit the band. Um, there was a, a a change in music at that point, too, where... These uh, guitar-oriented bands like uh, Ted Nugent and a- Aerosmith and, and uh, uh, all of that was getting uh, pushed to the side on the radio by the cars. Rick Kasich's mm-hmm. band, our opening band, suddenly became the biggest thing out of Boston with synthesizers playing the lead parts instead of guitars. And the police came out with a whole right. different kind of progressive take on, on rock. So, the only really big rock band left standing at that point was Van Halen and a c d c but Van Halen were really the big the big thing uh Joe had left aerosmith he went to uh he wanted to do his own thing, so he started his own band um, I went through some different changes and different bands and and uh, what I had decided was I was going to get out of the rock. And uh, become a normal person.
0: (laughs) Is that possible (laughs) to seg back into society?
1: (laughs) I, I, for whatever reason, I I thought that that was something I should experience. So I, I, my dad um, hired me at at his at his shop, the Music Box, and I was working downstairs. You know, I wasn't really fit to be up on the sales floor. I still had shaggy hair, and I was a rock and roller. You know. but I was downstairs fixing broken record players. And that's when I got a call from the management office in Boston that had just signed Joe Perry. And they got Joe, but his band, the project, had kind of fallen apart. The bass player and the singer had both left. So it was just Joe and a drummer. And they said, hey, do you want to come down and audition? And I said, no, (laughs) I don't want to. I've made a change. And um, it wasn't only that I'd made the change, but also I did not want to go through rejection uh, of going to gain my hopes up and and have it not pan out. Because as you can imagine, I didn't mention it, uh, Thunder Train during those five years, we were being seen by every record company You know, we were all constantly going to New York, playing these big showcases and meeting the record label head guy. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, you feel like you're so close. Right. And And,
0: nothing was catching.
1: And so, uh, you know, I just did not didn't handle that well and didn't want any more of that kind of rejection. But, uh, so I hung up the phone and, uh, but the phone rang again and Earthquake Morton, who was over at the management office and who was the one that said, you've got to get Mock Bell, uh, said, sorry, you don't really have a choice in this and uh, you have to come down and, and sing because this is, this gig is yours, man. And uh, I, I I did go down, I auditioned and I started keeping a diary. Um, I started keeping a diary when I got the call. I I knew that this was um, an unusual event. Having been in the band scene for a long time, it's not every day that a guy like Joe Perry calls you up and gives you a chance to be in his band. And uh, so I, I started documenting the whole process. Uh, preparing for the audition, doing the audition, getting into the project and then everything that that followed and a whole lot of stuff followed. Um, Kept it in a diary for myself and uh, ended up two years ago publishing the diary and and, and, uh, it's been a really weird two-way road going. Uh, The diary, is stuff that happened almost 40 years, 40 years ago in the early 80s, Um, so I'm, I've reawakened a lot of that, and the guys in the band also, uh, it's reawakened and connected, you know, I'm hearing from the old sound man, I'm hearing from the old road manager, I read the book and wow, you know, it was a mush in my head, but seeing what we did each day, it's the clarity of it, and, and I understand it so much better. Uh, getting all the old kids from all over the country and all over the world that saw the band uh, back in touch with so many of so so that so I'm going back on this nostalgia trip, but I'm also moving forward because all of a sudden I'm a writer and with a published book, and I'm on a podcast with you in California, and and I'm uh, you know doing. All these different uh tv and radio things and, and in correspondence with uh in kids from instagram who are 16 years old who were born in the 21st century that found an old joe perry project album and they can't believe that i'm you know that they can talk with me and they can read this diary that uh, of everything that happened so uh like i said it's two two roads so, so it's it's kind of paved a new path for me forward as I, as I uh, get into this part of my life that's been such an uh, incredible blessing and uh, such an exciting um, opportunity.
0: So last year was when Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker came out. And um, it, 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 so you feel that, that uh, everything just, uh, that it took, like you said, 40 years to come uh, to, to sort of coalesce in your mind so that you could, um, you know, go through and hone the book and then publish it. And then it's, you've introduced yourself and all of this music to a new generation.
1: That's what my literary agent in New York said, you know, why didn't you release this 35 years ago? Um, it's, in a lot of ways, I think it's a lot more powerful having this document of the early 80s. Uh, it's, you know, it's not just, you know, you. it's people that don't know who Aerosmith is, uh, are reading this and enjoying it just for the uh, 80s uh ambiance that is going on, you know, it is, like you said, it's the analog, uh, days and, uh, I'm constantly running up against these brand new technologies like VCRs and ATMs. I haven't seen one, but I've heard of one. Right, right. Searching, you know, these things come up in the book, you know, uh, going to a, a, a hard rock cafe for the first time. I actually saw one. I'd heard of them in new- in England, but I never saw one in the States. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is is exciting (laughs) it's ridiculous now looking back but um so people enjoy that and i think the kids the kids really enjoy um understanding a little bit more of what life on the road in the 80s was um but yeah yeah we we uh i released the book at the end of 2019 and then this last summer i got back together with earthquake morton who was the guy who actually called me um and who happens to be a voiceover expert and has a fantastic booming voice. Uh, I rewrote certain parts of the diary so that uh, it, it's a first person book, of course, it's a diary. But I wrote some of it into third person so Earthy could set up some of the situations and put me in the situation. And then I come in and pick it up. And I also got some of my, my colleagues from, from the project also to uh, pop in and, and share some tales. Um, So we did the audio book on Audible, um, came out a few months ago, Um, made, you know, we made good use of, of, of our remote time because Mm -hmm. all of us are musicians with um, home studios and everybody has a little bit of extra time on their hands Mm -hmm. at the moment when we're recording this, when the pandemic is going on. Um, And so we had a... We actually had a really fun, creative um, time making the book, and I feel guilty saying that we had fun in 2020, but we did.
0: No, you were making lemonade out of the lemons, and you, because you have the gear, you have the time, and it, and it affords you this opportunity. And why not? I mean, put something beautiful out into the world where you know it can offer inspiration and joy to to people, especially you know, younger people. Um, I feel really lucky that I, I was born in 1969, so last gasp of the 60s, but my brother was born in 1960, so I inherited his music as well. But mm-hmm. I remember Aerosmith, and I remember Zeppelin and The Who and The Beatles and The Stones and and all those, all the Jethro Tull and all those guys. And um, And what a fantastic time capsule that you're offering, you know, the millennials or the Gen Z people who are introduced to this music. And also during this time when people, like you said, have more time, and especially young people, that maybe they're going to be picking up a guitar. You know, maybe they're going to turn into rock stars in their living rooms. Um, But I, oh, I did want to ask you something about, so you 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 became a guitarist, but when did the when did the vocal thing come in, and what did you do for vocal training if anything, or when did you realize that you had a voice <clears throat> hmm.
1: that's a really good question uh, yeah, I never did anything about my voice. I never did vocal training. I remember uh trying out i think for the chorus at, at public school and being turned down. Uh, you know, I was just squeaky and and no confidence, and I, I didn't know whether I did want to do it or didn't want to do it. Chorus wasn't for me anyway. I, I'm not. I'm I'm a I'm a call the wild renegade. Guy. Yeah.
0: you're a front guy. You're a rock star.
1: <laughs> what happened was, you know, when I got together when I was 13 with that drummer and myself wailing away on my guitar, you just needed a needed a vocal to hang it on, and the drummer wasn't about to sing. So I just started, you know, howling away. Um, my pitch is, is good, and and uh, and I have a loud voice, and it's kind of a high voice that cuts. So I had I was gifted with some things that work for rock, um, but but I always uh, was I never had confidence really about my singing ability, and and that you'll see that in the diary. I'm constantly, uh, questioning, uh, my, my ability. It was my Achilles heel. Um, you know, people come up to you all the time when, after you do a great, uh, set and say, great set, man. Oh, great show. Oh, you're wild up there. You're crazy. You know, nobody ever comes up. Oh, I just adore your singing voice. You know, nobody, nobody says that. (laughs) So you're always one, you know, I'd be hanging from the chandeliers and and wearing (laughs) pants and looking super cool but you know everybody was happy but you know I've always wondered can I actually sing right. it, it was quite exciting when we went into the studio for the first time and uh did a demo because I'd been with the band for a while at that point and I in truth I didn't know if Joe had ever heard my voice because between you and me Joe plays guitar pretty darn loud yeah and singing you know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you search for it. But when you go into the studio, you know, they've got that big microphone right in front of your face and they're capturing that. And, uh, but lo and behold, you know, came out pretty well and Joe was happy. And you know, we ended up writing a whole lot of music together and, and got a record deal. Took a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, along with losing his singer and his uh, his bass player, Joe had also lost his record deal and lost his house and lost his wife. And lost just about everything, tens of dollars, when he and I got together. And that's the other thing. This story is not in Learjets and tour buses. This is in a little van, crisscrossing America, playing every dive joint, just to make money to get to the next town and Mm -hmm. try to get our music together, get the band together to a point where a record label would recognize us as a for real rock and roll band that they could... Mm -hmm. uh, Put on their label, and it took took a couple of years. Believe it or not, I thought with a Joe Perry, all you got to do is say Joe is available. Yeah. Three labels, you know, just trying to snatch him up. Mm.
0: So, so you're you're. This is so. This is a. This is 1982. Mm-hmm. You're in a little van with Joe Perry, going around all these dive bars. Meanwhile, Duran Duran is selling out arenas, <laughs> sure. and you're thinking,
1: what? That's- the Thompson Twins,
0: yes. Howard Jones, all those people. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that, yeah, it totally changed like I was saying. As Van Halen was out there rocking, but yeah. a lot of the bands that were uh, killing at that point were, you know, the Go-Go's, wonderful bands, fantastic bands, but Pat
0: Benatar was out there at that time.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. And at least she was more of a of a real rock band, but, yeah. but those bands.
0: Oh, voice too oh
1: man there was there was some great uh I, I never got to uh do a show with her we did a lot of gigs with cheap trick mm-hmm. uh joan jett uh we, we'd get to play still with the ramones and uh, david johansson but then we'd play with marshall tucker and mm-hmm. huey lewis yeah Joe Perry, you know, he's uh, mainstream. So you could put him on a bill with, you know, Ramones punk type or with Marshall Tucker. and, and right.
0: Or the pretenders.
1: <laughs> and, and everybody's going to be fine with it. Everybody wants to see Joe Perry and all the bands, all Doug Joe. Uh, I, you know, so I was riding coattails big time on that. I mean, it was fantastic. The, the doors that opened... Um, it was just funny because once the, uh, the spotlights and the, and the red carpet was rolled up, we were back in that little van at the Super 8 Motel because we really, <laughs> we had Joe Perry, but that was about it. We didn't really have any money or, or, or any visible support.
0: So you're eating chicken McNuggets and, and, and drinking Big Ulps and making your way across the country. <laughs>
1: except that Joe would never allow us to go to a fast food. Joe, Joe, for all his unhealthy habits, was a healthy eater. I mean, he was okay with a truck stop. We could, a uh, Denny's, okay, but never, uh, uh, never a McDonald's or, a, you know, that kind of a thing.
0: That That's probably his, his Portuguese and Italian roots, you know, like these are, these are food cultures. So he would probably, you know, just stick his nose up at anything that wasn't like, Really good and nourishing. <laughs> yeah, he
1: definitely had his standards, and, and uh, so that that was fine. But um, yeah, we we managed to eat most days. Uh, luckily, being skinny was uh, was in, so <laughs> we were definitely a lean and hungry band. But yeah, it was a blast, and, and uh, it's been it was amazing uh, pulling the the diaries off the shelf. You know, there's a certain I couldn't just send the diaries in and say publish this. You know, you, you have to change it into a manuscript. There's a certain amount of of inking, it, uh, uh, coloring in w- to the sketches to add, make it more book like, mm-hmm. and and um, and fact checking. You know, i I had mentioning all kinds of names, places, people, uh, going back and making sure these things are all spelled correctly and and get the grammar right and blah blah blah. But um,
0: and reminding yourself, wow, did this really happen? <laughs> did we really sing with David Bowie? That,
1: some, <laughs> some of it, yeah. I mean, uh, some of it I remember, but yeah, there were certain things that just really, like you said, really, we did that? <laughs> you know, there it is in the diary. So, and that that's the part of a lot of these rock star books, uh, including a bunch of the Aerosmith books that are around. Um, the timelines get a little uh, wacky because especially let's face it they they're the toxic twins it's not like they were keeping they weren't writing diaries and you know they they come in and out of the haze um whereas (laughs) i I was kind of a lightweight i have to admit i never uh partied to the extent that those guys did and uh, you know for whatever reason i kept the diary and so so the timeline it is true and you really get to see when some of these things happen, and, and, and it's a little different than the lore that uh, is in some of these other books. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Well, and also too, as as a front guy, you got to take care of your voice. You you have to you you have to get sleep. You have to you know, so you can't be because otherwise you don't you don't have longevity. So you were probably like you said, you were a lightweight. That that was a good thing. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah, I wish I could say more that yeah, that I mean like I I mean uh Robin Xander's incredible in Cheap Trick. I mean he he really takes care of himself and he brushes his teeth like every fifteen minutes. <laughs> That's
0: fine.
1: Going to a party with him, you know, where's the bathroom? He's got his toothbrush with him and yeah, he's very um
0: he's Just
1: very <laughs> I don't know, I it, you can imagine. I was I was older by the time by the time I was with Joe. I was 29 years old, and I was like this. I, I had figured that my rock uh, glory days were behind me when I got that call, and having this second chance to get out there and really get out there and play the big places in front of the big crowds. Um, I didn't want to waste too much time sleeping, even if it did um, uh, <laughs> uh, curtail my my vocal chops. <laughs> I, I I tried to uh, grab all the gusto that I possibly could. And, and did
0: you guys, did you guys travel overseas at all on, on, in this two, in this two and a half year period, or were you all domestic at this time? We
1: went, yeah, we had a fantastic trip down to Caracas, Venezuela, where we played a huge arena for a couple of nights headlining down there. Joe was, It was the closest to gain to be the Beatles that I'll ever have. We really were the toast of the town, the key of the city, and all they played on the radio the whole four days we were there was Joe Perry music. Um, That was the only time we went south of the border, um, and we used to play a lot up in Canada. Um, We were flirting with um, Japan right when I got the terrible news that Joe Perry was quitting the band Mm. to go back with Aerosmith
0: to get back in the saddle with Aerosmith, (laughs) literally.
1: Now that's the other thing about my book is uh, that surprise ending is not that big of a surprise for people that follow rock because they know that it's basically a time bomb ticking. Mm -hmm. I'm telling all these tales and I'm making all these plans. I'm busy writing new songs. I'm busy drawing the storyboard for the next video and the reader the rock fan reader is saying, cowboy, don't you know Joe's about to quit the band? No, I have no idea.
0: Their are numbered, dude. <laughs> They're numbered.
1: You know, people people were, from the day I joined the band, people were saying, oh, Aerosmith's gonna get back together. Joe and Steven, those two, you know, they'll get back to you. But um, as the lead singer, I had to uh, put my, the blinders on and, and disregard that noise, because in order for me to get out there and rock the house, you know, I couldn't be thinking that this is just some temporary thing. Um, you know, I, I went into it full throttle. And so I, and we got to the point after the album came out that I really was feeling like we got a real band and we got a real shot here and we're growing and we're writing some cool music. And, uh, you know, maybe this is, and, and we're reading the paper that Stephen fell off of another stage and, you know, <laughs>
0: as he does from time to time
1: <laughs> uh, this this span doesn't do that so um but anyway yeah so the, so so the it's a Joe Perry project is a doomed band we have a blast but but it's kind of like the titanic movie you've read your history book so you know that at some point this boat is going to hit an iceberg
0: you're going to rearrange those deck chairs all you want <laughs> It's still gonna happen.
1: <laughs> so yeah, you know it, it's great though because um, the the diary has all the arcs. It has the the it has the early climax. Then it goes through the the, the story arc that you want, and then it has another climax, and and it grows in a way that you know a novelist would. Outline how to do a real novel, but mm-hmm. the diary strangely has that whole uh, beautiful waveform just built into it, including this incredible teary ending. After a very happy, uh, uplifting uh, story, you know, people all write to me and say, you know, I slowed down at the end because I didn't want to read the last <laughs> pages, a- and then you know, I can't stop crying after. I reading. didn't want it to be over. <laughs> so, so it was all like built in so so um um so I lucked out with that it, it didn't end. you know a lot of bands end up with the band all throwing stuff at each other and hating each other and not talking right. we weren't we weren't like that we 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 were having a blast of making great music but something bigger than us finally came that we just couldn't fight and we didn't We couldn't blame Joe for going back to Aerosmith. Um, Yeah, You know, it was just, doom was like, you know, ships passing in the night, a doomed, I won't say romance, but whatever, a doomed uh, circumstance. So I ended up with this kind of a poetic thing at the end, which I can't really, I can't take credit for, you know, people are digging the book, but um, it's just, what happened in real life. It's, a, it's the diary and it's just, it, it, it lays it out there and, and it, people say it reads like prose.
0: I can't, I can't wait to read it. I'm really excited to, to, to get my copy. Um, but so then, so then after this, Joe goes back to Aerosmith and then what, what happens with you? What is your, what is your plan after that in 1984?
1: I cried buckets (laughs) (laughs) Danny, the bass player. And I, uh, kept, kept together, uh, and, uh, started up the wild bunch and we, and we went out for a couple of years, uh, continued to play and had, had a great time. Um, it's very hard though. Um, after you've been in a band with Joe Perry, um, um, you know because we were going back to a lot of the rooms we'd played before, but right. a lot of times we were the opening band now instead of the headline
0: it's it feels like you've like you've been demoted like you've gone full rock star you know you're you're the iconic rock star and then you go back to like being in the you know being, being in the chorus instead of being
1: exactly yeah prima like,
0: ballerina out there you know
1: yeah it, it, you know there's it was it, there's hard parts about it. it, you know some people might uh i don't know you get stuck in a now now coming out of the Joe Perry project, i wasn't ready to boom just go back to mm-hmm. working in the sound in the lab fixing broken record players you know i, I not i was uh, uh, a uh a semi semi uh star at that point, and I wanted to continue. To feel the glow of this uh, spotlight and people were telling me you know yeah that's what you do and you got to keep doing it but it was like you say it was it was painful to play to a half full room it was painful to be an opener instead of the headliner and and so as time went on that wound down and and uh by that i moved out to california i lived on the sunset strip mm-hmm. um that's right by now it's uh, the later '80s, and this is when Guns and Roses and all those bands were coming up. A lot of them were hanging out at my apartment back at that point, and um, but I, um, I had gotten to another. I had another thing that I was really into back when I was a self-directed learner, and that was cooking. And I got a gig at La Parc, and then from there to the Beverly Hills Hotel. This is pre the Sultan of Brunei back when mm-hmm. the hotel was cool. Mm-hmm. And I was working um working at the Beverly Hills Hotel, uh car, doing ice sculptures and and you know, platters for banquets in the in the crystal ballroom. And um, it was a creative gig. I kept the mm-hmm. fact that I'd been a, a rocker quiet, you know. a mm-hmm. way to make money and uh and get my teeth fixed. They had a great dental plan.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: All that came back east, got married to Julia in, in England. She's, she's from London. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, and then I was working here at the Boston Harbor Hotel doing the same thing, uh, a chef. And then I got um, the call to get back into self directed education. That was in the mid 90s. And so I went and worked at a private school for 15 years, and now I'm at the Maycomber Center which is a resource center for homeschool kids. Mm-hmm. So your homeschooler can come hang out with other kids and play music with me or uh, uh, play sports, or all these different things that we offer. Um, and I've been at Macombra for almost 10 years now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and uh, And then I became an author. <laughs> these doors just keep opening.
0: It goes to show that your you know, I I think the most, the best lives and the most interesting lives are the ones that have all these different chapters to them. You know, it's not like you start off, I think a lot of times when you're a young person, you think that you're going to do one thing in your life, but that's not at all what happens. If you're lucky, what happens is that you have many iterations of yourself. (laughs) You become different things.
1: I will say one thing that I never did was go to college or any kind of higher education. Uh, nothing against those things. But for me personally, I was not a classroom type guy.
0: Yeah. How ironic a, you're an educator. <laughs> I love that.
1: I was a driven guy. I was a guy that, you know, I saw what I wanted and, and I love to produce. I love to make, you know, to see it through whatever it was, whether it's, you know, making a, a a bourbon pecan pie, or mm-hmm. whether it's making a record album, or doing a film with the kids, or writing a story, I like to produce, have a production at the end of it. I love seeing that on my calendar, that mm-hmm. something that's going to be finished. Um, that's why I love, you know, I love doing this podcast with you. You know, we set it up, we're doing it. Mm-hmm and Mm -hmm. then i'll be able to tune in and listen to it in the car and it'll be great you know
0: well and the other thing i mean one of the reasons why i started this um this this last year was because i know there's a lot of people who are hungry for stories that are inspiring stories of lives well lived and and also for those people who don't know remember we were talking in the beginning about sometimes people don't know what their passion is or they don't, they don 't know what they 're interested in I, I find this mind blowing because i 'm interested in so many things but um, but there are a lot of people who don 't really know what they, what, what they 're into but I think one of the secrets to finding it is to is to uh, insert passion into whatever it is that you 're doing, even if it 's not something that you necessarily think is maybe your thing, but if you if you give it passion, you give it energy. I think, I think energy begets energy. (laughs) Yes. And uh, so um, that's one of the, one of the reasons why I'm doing this. It's kind of an offering, you know, for, for people. Plus, I, I think it's really important to have conversations in a time when we're so separate When we're so, and you know, there's been a lot of uh, polarization um, in our society politically, etc, and that kind of division is I find it very distressing and so i i 'm all for making connections and having conversations and having meetings of minds and and um, and especially one on one you know between individuals that's that 's how the world changes you know when people make connections and have understanding between one another so um, this has been fantastic and actually um, you probably know this because you and I are connected via Joe Milliken, who made our introduction. Um, and before that, the connection was Fuzby Morse, who played with Richard and the Rabbits before they became the Cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a friend of ours um, here in L.A. And, and also a person who plays very often at the Kibbutz Room. Are you familiar with the Kibbutz Room at Cantor's on Fairfax? That's
1: I know Cantor's well, but I... Uh never uh, visited the kibbutz room
0: because that's a place where for the last gosh probably since the early 90s has been buzzing on Tuesday nights with uh, uh, the Fawkers, the friends of the of Cantor's kibbutz room and that's where all of these session players touring players etc converge on Tuesday nights normally in normal yep. times uh, and Fuzby is one of those people and he's somebody who's played with you know, everybody from U2 to Robbie Robertson to Lou Reed to, you know, to the pre-cars to everybody. So Fusby was was the magic sauce that made this happen in a, in a way, you know, I, three, three degrees of separation.
1: <laughs> I just missed the kibbutz room because I moved out of L.A. Uh, I was living right behind Greenblatt's um, mm-hmm. uh, on Laurel Ave at the bottom of Laurel Canyon Boulevard. Uh, and... Uh, um, yeah, I'd be at Cantor's all the time, but uh, yeah, Kibitz Room '90s. Yeah, 'cause I I left in '89.
0: Uh
1: huh. Uh huh. So I miss I miss the Kibbutz Room. I was back when the the Central uh, before it was the Viper Room. And, mm, uh, yes. Uh, that that era, but um. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. Uh, I love the conversation. I think it's great what you're doing, and I lo- I love listening to these podcasts, and I I like how. Uh, the podcasts, like, when I'm listening to them, I'll, you know, I'll tune in to here, maybe a guy does what I do, plays music, but then it will go to an entrepreneur, or a lady that makes jewelry, or, you know, who knows what it is, but I'm just, I like the conversations, a- and there's so much um, uh, that, that, that bonds us all, um, once you start to talk, that, you know, I mean, I met you, one minute before we started this conversation and, and yet we can converse for an hour yes
0: yes yeah oh, this has been this has been great it's been a joy and and look the cat has been sleeping the whole time <laughs> <laughs> oh he's
1: a, boy he's
0: enjoyed, this this is a compliment though Mock. he this means that he found it interesting enough to stay around because he could have just gone in the other room
1: <laughs> oh. all right dana i'll i'll take it i'll i'll, I'll have i to... <laughs> said so the reviews are in
0: You've been blessed by a cat. This is a good thing. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. This has been so great.
1: Thank you. And I wish you great success with your show in the new year and keep them coming. Build up that portfolio. Hope you get Keith Richards on.
0: Oh, oh, that would, that would just make my heart sing.
1: <laughs> yeah. I wish I could say I was his paper boy or something, but I got no connection there.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, Thank you, Mark. Thanks so much.
1: All right. I'm at oncearocker.com if anybody wants to check in. Yes,
0: I'm going to put your links up on the. the And that was the fabulous and wonderful Cowboy Mock Bell. So kind of him to beam in from the East Coast today to chat with us on conversations from here. Uh, It was a great time. We actually had never met uh, before five minutes before we had the interview. So uh, just goes to show what a lovely person he is. Uh, Super good guy. Great to talk with. Uh, We really appreciate his time today. So thank you so much, Mock. And we are going to end with a special treat today, which is the title track, Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker, from Mock Bell and the Joe Perry Project. And you will also hear the inimitable Mr. Joe Perry on guitar several times, actually, through this track. It's a great one. Enjoy. And until next time take good care of yourselves, take good care of each other, and I will see you on the other side.
1: the show.